I'm Chris Stevenson, and this is Strange Assembly, episode 303, Adventures in the Forgotten Realms. As you can tell from the title of this, I'm going to be talking today about Adventures in the Forgotten Realms, or, you know, officially some longer things like Magic the Gathering, Adventures in the Forgotten Realms, Dungeons and Dragons, Extravaganza, Experience, whatever it is. But this is not going to be a Magic the Gathering set review, really. I mean, I'm not, you know, some high-level tournament player. That's not usually what we're talking about when we're talking about a Magic the Gathering set, you know, some high-level tournament review. But this, even more so than that, is not really about what the Magic cards are as Magic cards. This is a review of Adventures in the Forgotten Realms as essentially a Dungeons & Dragons accessory. Does Adventures in the Forgotten Realms conjure Dungeons & Dragons? I've been very excited about this set since it was announced. Has there been a, a payoff for that? And the answer is yes. Yes. is great. So, Adventures in the Forgotten Realms. This is taking Faerun, the primary Dungeons & Dragons world, putting it in a Magic the Gathering set. This is not an official crossover, in a sense, in that they've left the door open for the possibility that Dungeons & Dragons worlds exist in the Magic the Gathering universe, but that hasn't happened yet. So this is almost like an alternate reality set from a Magic the Gathering perspective. These characters don't necessarily exist in Magic the Gathering. In fact, as of right now, they don't exist in Magic the Gathering. And there are characters in here, in Adventures in the Forgotten Realms, who have Planeswalker cards. But they've been very explicit that that does not mean that these characters are planeswalkers. They are mechanically planeswalkers as far as how their cards work, obviously, but the characters themselves are not planeswalkers because this is Dungeons & Dragons, where there's no such thing as planeswalkers, not Magic the Gathering, where there is. Okay, so what are the central things that about this that, that make it Dungeons & Dragons? So there are a couple of new mechanical things that they add in. The first one is rolling 20-sided dice. This has only appeared before in Magic the Gathering on a single card, which was Sword of Dungeons and Dragons, (laughs) appropriately enough, which was an uncard, a silver border card. It's not legal for any quote-unquote real Magic play. There was never a time where you could use it in a tournament. Technically, you can't even use it in Commander without getting permission from your opponents to break the normal Commander rules. And had you roll a 20-sided dice. In fact, prior to this, Magic the Gathering in Black Borderland was not allowed to roll dice at all. There could be coin flips, but not dice rolls. And now, I don't know whether or not this is going to produce something that is relevant for ever playing in, in a tournament, because they generally have a preference for not letting even coin flip cards be tournament relevant because they don't want to add that randomness on top of top decking. But since we're not interested in tournament relevance, really here, that kind of doesn't matter. Does rolling a 20-sided die conjure Dungeons & Dragons? Why, yes, indeed it does. What a shock. Indeed, the way that a lot of them work 
is that it's something like if you roll a 0 through a 9, you get the weaker version of the effect. If you roll a 10 to a 19, you get a better version of the effect. And if you roll a natural 20, you get the best version of the effect, sometimes a version that is way better than what you would get if you rolled a 1 to 19. So you get that whole critical hit thing. The second big new mechanical thing that they have in this is literally dungeons. There's this new token card type called dungeons, and they have three of them. If you've been around D&D, you'll, you'll recognize them. You have Dungeon of the Mad Mage, which was a recent 5th edition campaign book. There's Lost Mine of Fandelver, which is the adventure's mini campaign in the original 5th edition starter kit. And then there's Tomb of Annihilation, which is one of these old, famous, super hard, kill the entire party off, old school dungeons from way, 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 way back in the day. A 5th edition version of it was also printed in Tales from the Yawning Portal. And so for each of these dungeons, you have a series of cards that let you venture into the dungeon. And the first time you do it, you pick which dungeon you're venturing into. You're then in that dungeon until you complete it. And every time you venture into the dungeon, you go down essentially a little flowchart on the token that gives you some minor benefit. I like it. It's, I think, about as best as you could do with the notion of going into the dungeon, right? You obviously have mechanical complexity issues. You can't you know, like go play a little side game of Dungeons & Dragons every time you play one of these cards. People seem to like Lost Might of Fandel for the best because it's mostly positive things. If you do Tomb of Annihilation, you like it. It punishes everybody along the way until you get to the end. So you can get a little bit of different flavor. And then Dungeon of the Mad Mage is a super dungeon in the game. In Sorry, in Dungeons and & Dragons. And it's a big long dungeon in Adventures in the Forgotten Realm. So you can sort of choose between the Lost Mind of Fandelver, which you get to complete faster, which helps you for certain cards. Or you can go for Dungeon of the Mad Mage, which has a higher payoff at the end, but takes longer to get there. To go along with Tomb of Annihilation, there's a legendary creature card of Aserak, the Archlich, who's, spoiler alert, around in Tomb of Annihilation. There's also a Sphere of Annihilation. I'll talk a little bit later about like famous objects and creatures that come in, but those work along with Tomb of, Tomb of Annihilation. I honestly actually get more of a kick out of the dungeon mechanic and being able to make a deck around the dungeon mechanic than I do out of rolling d20s. But hey, the, the d20 thing is there if you want to. And indeed, one of the class cards, the Barbarian class card, lets you get to roll two dice and then keep whichever the better one is when you are rolling a d20. So you have the ability to, to kind of make a deck around that if you want. Like I've mentioned those class cards. There is a class card for every single one of the classes in the 5th edition core book. You know, you want to be a warlock, you want to be a wizard, want a cleric. In magic, it's an enchantment. They've got a separate frame, a vertical with the vertical text box on the right. If you've seen them kind of like the sagas, or actually almost exactly like the sagas. <laughs> and they represent you being that class. Like you can play a cleric class enchantment that means you are a cleric. You start at level one. You can pay to increase to level two or three. It's really great to include those, right? You being a class and leveling up is kind of an, an inherent part of Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, in fact, we'll talk a little bit more about second person cards 
in a minute, but I mentioned dungeons. Of course, the other half of that title is dragons. There are definitely a higher than usual number of dragons in Adventures of the Forgotten Realms, and they also exist in all colors because they're like Dungeons and Dragons dragons, right? You don't have the whole like, oh, this is green, so it's not allowed to fly. All the dragons just get to fly. There's a cycle of legendary dragons. I kind of have a hard time caring about them. I mean, there's there's like, oh, it's Icing Death, the one that Drizzt killed. But other than that, it's really like, if you played this one campaign, you probably ran into this one dragon, but they don't have some bigger storyline prominence, really. What I really like the best is the uncommon ones, which is just literally they made red dragon, blue dragon, black dragon, green dragon, white dragon. Because, hey, the five chromatic dragon colors line up with the five colors of magic, which is great. If you overanalyze them, as I am one to do, you know, you'll see that things like, oh, a white dragon and what a white dragon does really thematically has nothing to do with the color of white in magic, like ice is associated with blue, selfish, kind of dumb, evil things, or black? You know, probably that's the easiest. They're not white. But, I mean, where else are you going to... When you got five colors and you got the five chromatic dragons that match those five colors, of course you're going to slot them up one-to-one. They're just really great to see. You do get one adult gold dragon, which is a gold card, a.k.a. a multicolor card, but you don't have a full cycle of the metallic dragons. Maybe we get those if they ever go back to D&D again. There's also showcase cards, which are, are noteworthy because they're specifically D&D themed. So showcase cards, these are the ones where you have some sort of alternate, not just an alternate art, but an alternate frame, a different way of presenting the cards. And they have uh, module lands as one of the showcase types, or I guess technically these aren't the showcase frames. Maybe these are one of the versions of the borderless cards. Who cares? They're a series of lands that look like really old Dungeons and Dragon modules. And the cards are things like Cave of the Frost Dragon and Den of the Bugbear, Hive of the Eye Tyrant, Dungeon Descent. Each of them has the little yellow slash in the top corner that says Dungeons and Dragons. It says Dungeon Module at the top. It, you know, an adventure for characters of level, you know, 11 to 16 or 1 to 4 whatever it is, as the case may be. They look fantastic, right? Those old modules are not by modern standards exemplars of graphic design, but they're very striking. And because they're relatively straightforward and color-focused, they translate very well to these smaller cards. And they have names like the ones I've given you. Like Most of them are lands that animate and become the creature. So like Cave of the Frost Dragon, you can pay and it acts as a Frost Dragon for the turn. That sort of thing. But the level of detail on these is also great too, because if if you know those really old modules from mostly the early 80s, they were numbered and lettered in a series. There's module A2, and then there's module B7, and all these different things depending on what they meant. Well, one of these lands is a common. One of them is an uncommon. The rest of them are rares. And in magic, you would often refer to commons as C and uncommons as U and rares as R. Well, because of the way these old modules were labeled, they're actually able to kind of combine that with the rarity. So the C series modules back in the early 80s went from 
C1 through C6. So the common borderless module land is labeled as dungeon module C7. Same thing for the rares, they start at R11. And so you just have this, this great, nice little extra touch when you go into the details of them. And they are they are absolutely, without a doubt, my favorite alternate treatment for a magic card ever. They look fantastic. They feel so D&D. It is great. They also have the showcase frames or what they call rulebook cards. They're creatures, so I kind of think of them as like monster manual frames. But they have just this old style black and white line art on them. It's the sort of thing where if you have no interest in D&D or you don't really know what these really old rule books look like and right where you had, okay, sure, you had a really nice painted full color art on like the front page of a chapter and maybe a couple other places. But other than that, you had this black and white line art in these early books. It's not in some sort of vacuum, like, oh, this fantastic, wondrous art, which they usually tend to go for and usually succeed at in Magic cards. But it's so resonant as my ancient, decrepit D&D playing self. It's really great to see them. This is the first time where I actually really want to collect a full set of all of these showcase cards. They are wonderful. They're not as good as the module lands. I think I mean, because like I said, I think those are the best ever. But hey, they're really nice to do. You also get to see in Adventures of the Forgotten Realms a lot of classic Dungeons and Dragons monsters that were not a thing in Magic the Gathering. Obviously, some of them are, right? Like, goblins are a classic D&D monster, but those are a constant thing in Magic. So yeah, there are some of them in Adventures of the Forgotten Realms, but who really cares? But you get to see grunt creatures, you know, like gnolls and hobgoblins and bugbears. You get to see a blink dog and a displacer beast. There's a gelatinous cube. What is better than a gelatinous cube? That's great. There's also an ochre jelly, but okay, that's a thing, but you can't really get excited about that like you can a gelatinous cube. There's the dreaded rust monster. You can sacrifice your own artifacts to power it up. I would honestly kind of like it if it ate your opponent's artifacts, create that sense of dread because, right, that's what the Rust Monster did. Oh my god, it's this thing that can eat my plate mail. Do you know how much that costs? You get more powerful things. There are whites. There's a mimic, of course. There's a mind flare. There's mind flares and beholders, both of those. There's a, you know, generic creature that's just kind of like a beholder or a mind flare. But then there are also legendary unique versions. Most notably, there is a card for Xanathar the crime lord beholder who likes to hang out in Waterdeep. You get even heavier hitters like the Tarask and a Demilich to go to town with. I just like some of the card types that they use. I don't know why I get a little kick, not the card types, the creature types on these things, right? Like an owl bear is literally a creature bird bear. I mean, which makes sense, right? It's an owlbear, but it amuses me to see it written out like that. There's a dragon turtle. It's literally just creature, dragon, turtle. The drider is an elf spider. It's good. You actually, for the first time, get, because there's, right, these species, you know, the concept of a half-species character, right, like a half-elf, half-human, is a concept in D&D that doesn't really get done in magic. So you can have, like, a half-elf monk who is, you know, creature, elf, human, monk. Right? It's great. 
There's also some lesser-known classics in there. There's a, a Bullet, there's a Frog Hemoth, there's a Roper. So there are really obvious ones, and then there are some deep cuts. In addition to, you know, your monster manual entries, there are Dungeons & Dragons species like halflings and tieflings that did not exist in Magic the Gathering. Dragonborn are around, but they're just dragon creature types, so they don't get a new creature type. But still, and I swear, one of these days, my beloved Asimar will get the recognition that they are due. I mean, tieflings are fine, but come on, we should have the other side of the cosmic half-breed scale. I'm just saying. I mentioned the second-person cards before, so right magic cards are not usually phrased in a conceptual terms in, in concept of, you know, as you. But that is a, a specific thing that's put into here to, to, to try to sort of evoke the Dungeons and Dragons. The, the place they led off with showing this was the basic lands. Basic lands usually have no flavor text. Here, each of them has like a little adventure starter, like you journey deep beneath the mountains and enter the halls of the Dwarven Kings. And I, those don't really do much for me because, I mean, it's a basic land. It doesn't mechanically click in to anything that the card does. I much prefer things like full art basic lands if I want to make my deck feel fancy or interesting, but they also work it into the titles of some of these modal spells. So there are cards that are just called like, you find the villain's lair, you happen on a glade, you hear something on watch, and each of those is a modal spell, which sort of presents two different ways that you would deal with this situation. And the way that they convey that, not just on these spells, but on a lot of spells, are ability word descriptions. Now, for those of you who are not as into magic, right, ability words are where they have like a little italicized bit of text in front of an ability to tell you what it is. And usually, the way that that works is that there will be some mechanic that you see repeated throughout the set, and they use the ability word to make it easier to recognize and talk about, even though it doesn't do anything. So they have one of those in Adventures in the Forgotten Realms, Pack Tactics. So all of the Pack Tactics are like, when this creature attacks, if you're attacking with six or more power, something happens. These ability words aren't like that. They're really flavor descriptions of what the card is and what they do. So for all the, the dragons, right? I mentioned there's a green dragon, a white dragon. Each of those has a come-into-play ability. And it could have said just what it would always says, right? When white dragon enters the battlefield, blah, 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 blah. Well, each of those leads off with an ability word. Acid breath, lightning breath, fire breath. So it is taking this mechanical thing and really injecting it with a lot of flavor. And I have to tell you, some of these are just amazingly great additions, even though they have no mechanical effect whatsoever. I think that they would be solid even if this wasn't D&D, but the fact that you get to explicitly tie it into things that you already know in a very clear way from Dungeons & Dragons just takes it up to the next level. Uh, I think the most notable one for this, for me, is is Dawnbringer Cleric, right? This is this is just some random common, right? When it comes into play, you get to pick one of three effects. Gain some life, destroy an enchantment, exile a card from a graveyard, right? It's just a hodgepodge of mechanical effects. It doesn't really have any mechanical or flavor resonance 
whatsoever. It's just, okay, whatever. It's a common that does some random teeny effects when it comes into play. But in Adventures in the Forgotten Realms, now that says cure wounds, gain some life, dispel magic, destroy an enchantment, gentle repose, exile a card from a graveyard. And all of a sudden, this random mechanical hodgepodge of things becomes this cleric casting a spell. And it's a spell that you know. They're casting cure wounds to heal you. They're casting gentle repose so that thing that's in the graveyard is going to come back up and you know tear you a new one. They're doing dispel magic. And oh, look, they've dispelled the magical effect that was on the battlefield. It goes from just a nothing card to just a flavor masterpiece. I, well, okay, that's masterpiece is overdoing it, but just like a real card that has real flavor. So when you play the modal spell, choose your weapon, right? It's got a picture of somebody who looks like a ranger, and you can pick either two-weapon fighting to double the creature's power and toughness for the turn, or you can pick archery to damage a flying creature. They, they're, they're really fantastic. They are one of my favorite things about the set, and they have nothing to do with the cards mechanically. Now, there's other classic D&D stuff in here, too. A few of these are reprints, like Bag of Holding had been printed as a magic card before, clearly as an homage to the Dungeons & Dragons concept. It's reprinted here. When I'm talking about these specific cards, some of this is in Adventures in the Forgotten Realms itself. Some of these are cards that are unique to the four Adventures in the Forgotten Realms commander decks you can buy. I'm not going to really differentiate them. But for, for purposes of this, but right, there's a belt of giant strength, boots of speed, dancing sword, 50 feet of rope, which, of course, has ability words for all the different things you can do with rope, right? You can tie a creature up and they taps it and it can't untap, or you can climb over a wall. I mean, that's never going to come up because who plays with walls, right? But, you know, it's a very flavorful thing to do with 50 feet of rope when you put that ability word on there. You can have your holy Avenger sword. An immovable rod that that came up in a session of D and D that I was running just a few weeks ago. An immovable rod. There's a portable hole. Remember, don't remove your opponent's bag of holding from the game with your portable hole, or you'll destroy the entire game or the space-time continuum or something. There's potion of healing. You can get good old thieves' tools. Treasure chest. The Vorpal sword to go with your. You know, you can you have the creature that has the Holy Avenger and the Vorpal sword. A good old wizard spellbook. And then there's spells. It's some of these, it's kind of surprised that they haven't shown up in some way before as magic cards, like most notably Fly. How did Fly not a magic card before this? But Burning Hands, Bull Strength. I mean, look at that. That's just Bull Strength. You got like a whole other five that you could do. Contact Other Plane, Find the Path, Hunter's Mark, Ah, Magic Missile. Way better as a D&D spell than a magic spell, by the way. But still, Magic Missile. Meteor Swarm. Uh, we can't have Fireball because they printed Fireball as a really complicated card that they don't want to reprint back in Alpha, but we can get Meteor Swarm, Power Word Kill. So you got super high power spells, Shocking Grasp, super low level spells. And then you just get cards that are named after Dungeons and Dragons concept, right? You can check for traps. You can play critical hit. You can kick in the door. You can take a long rest. You can find a secret door. And of course, the dreaded split the party oh you don't want to do that why did your opponent split their party they're going to suffer for that so the last thing i i really wanted to talk about is legendary creatures so because of commander legendary creatures have become a much much more important part of magic and for all that i love adventures in the forgotten realms i think that this is a place where it fell down 
a little bit because there are so much history in the Forgotten Realms or, or any D&D setting. And it's not as explored in this set as much as I would like it to be. Right? There are a pretty solid number of legendary creatures who were created just for this set. I'm kind of surprised by that. Like, I mean, I understand that you have to like make certain mechanical things, so okay, there are going to be a few of them where you can't find a D&D character. I wish they had done a little bit more of digging into the, the files on Dungeons & Dragons to fill out these instead of creating brand new characters that we've never seen before. And there are other things where like they do appear but me being my old self i don't i don't know what like there's multiple legendaries that are from some like recent comic series legends of baldur's gate i haven't read the comics i don't know who these characters are and like it's fine that there's some of that i don't expect them to limit themselves to only things i've read but i mean baldur's gate why is baldur's gate a big thing oh it's because of the old video game baldur's gate so why don't we have more characters from that don't get me wrong, it has Minsk and Boo, and they are epic, and they are probably the single most memorable thing from those games. And Minsk being able to turn a creature into a giant within his ability is great, and Boo's flavor text being, go for the eyes, Boo, is great. I love those characters, right? Minsk Beloved Ranger is an entirely accurate card title, but where's Jahira, Dinahir, Khalid, Imowen? I mean, it's literally decades later, and I still know which NPCs I had in my party playing through the original Baldur's Gate. I would have loved to see some more of those characters show up instead of some of these, like, okay, who who are these people? Okay, so now that I've, I've griped about who I don't get to see, who do you get to see? What legendary things, what people, stuff do you get to see? Well, the biggest spotlight in this is is Drizzt, right? He's a super popular character. He's had reams and reams of books. So he's sort of like the front piece for the, on, I think, on one of the boxes, that sort of thing. So you get him, and there's no separate card for the Panther, but when he comes into play, you get a Panther token. Just like when Minsk comes into play, you get the Boo token. You get Bruner Battlehammer, Cadbury, Wolfgar. So if that's your jam, you get those. You get the eye and the hand of Vecna, those old school artifacts. You get the Book of Vile Darkness and the Book of Exalted Deeds. You get the Blackstaff itself, but not like Keldon Blackstaff. And actually, other than Xanathar, I don't know that you get anyone else who's from Waterdeep. There's a decent number of well-known people who are like always in Waterdeep. There's another place, like right, it's one of these. Surely there was something to, to plumb off of that. You do get Volo. In fact, his name is the card name is Volo Guide to Monsters, which is one of the best magic card names ever. Whoever came up with that, that's super clever. I love that card name. You get Tiamat and you get a Temple of the Dragon Queen. You get Bahamut too, although I'll admit that the Platinum Dragon of Forgotten Realms never felt as relevant or exciting to me as is Dragonlance equivalent Paladine. The only other deities who show up as cards are Asmodeus and Lolf. Bahamut appears shapeshifted into a human as a Planeswalker card. Lolf is also a Planeswalker card. Asmodeus and Tiamat are creature cards with the one of their, card, their uh, creature types being God. But you're going pretty heavily evil on the available gods. 
this is another place I wish they had been a little bit more. Obviously, there's no way you're going to be able to print cards for the entire Forgotten Realms Pantheon, but I would have liked to see a little bit more of that. Maybe there just isn't a way to get them in. I mean, I'm just going to sit here and hope that we get to see many of these things in some other D&D theme set, because I will totally buy more D&D theme set. Come on. Sigil, City of Doors. You know you want to make that as a set, Wizards of the Coast. You're not printing it as a D&D 5th edition guidebook yet, but but come on, that would make a set. It can be a second urbanish setting after uh, Ravnica, right? Your other extra planar evils also get representation in Orcus and Azrael, who feature in existing 5th edition campaigns, if I'm recalling correctly. I love seeing Morden Kanan, right? Because, again, old... But he's not actually from the Forgotten Realms. In fact, like a, like the original place people know him from, or at least I know him from, right, is a lot of the old spells. You had Morden Kanan's disjunction, that sort of thing. And those characters with their names there, Bigby, Liam, and Tasha, they're actually originally Greyhawk characters. So I'm not sure why he's in an Adventures of the Forgotten Realms set, but whatever. It's cool to see him. If we're going to see more than Kanan, I wish we would see more. Like, like there's a spell for Tasha's hideous laughter, but no Tasha. But again, you know, maybe you could get, make some of those as as legendaries. Would have been nice to see. But hey, more than Kanan is cool. And the final one, I just, you know, the deck of many things. I know it's an artifact. I actually don't really think of this as singular, but it is legendary here. I mean, it, it really, it's another one of these, it's a D20 card, right? You are rolling a die and seeing what happens. It's not as completely wildly random as a deck of many things because this isn't a digital project. You can't have it do, you know, 20 or 50 different random things when you play it. But hey, it's it's really cool. So that's like half an hour of me talking to basically swing all the way back around to where I started, which is that Adventures in the Forgotten Realms is a fantastic Dungeons and Dragons accessory. Like I mentioned, I, I was super pumped to see that we were going to have this crossover between D&D and Magic the Gathering on the Magic side, just like we've had crossovers on the D&D side with the publication of Magic-themed D&D supplements, right? There's a D&D book for Ravnica, there's a D&D book for Theros, there's a D&D book for Strixhaven coming out later this year. And the set, it did not disappoint. Overall, it's really great. The alternate art cards are fantastic. The borderless module lands are the single best, for me, alternate frame treatment for a magic card ever. If you like D&D and you like magic, it's really just a win on every sort of resonance and flavor level. You've been listening to Strange Assembly, your tabletop gaming podcast. You can find us on the web at www.strangeassembly.com. You can subscribe to this podcast there through Amazon, through the Apple Podcasts app, through the Google Play Store, through Stitcher, really any sort of podcatching service. If you don't see Strange Assembly on your favorite podcatching service, please let me know and I will try to rectify that situation. I'm Chris at strangeassembly.com. I'm always happy to hear your uh, comments, criticisms, other feedback. Uh, you can also find us at the usual social media. We're facebook.com slash strangeassembly. 
at Strange Assembly on Twitter, at Strange Assembly on Instagram. Uh, but until then, I'm Chris Stevenson, and this is Strange Assembly. Never stop gaming.